Parshas Bahar Bechukosai, the lost ones. In Mesech Tamakas, we have a statement from one of the great Torah leaders in our history. Amar Rav, Mistifina Mehai Kra. Rav said, there is a certain verse in the Torah that I am afraid of. There's a Pasuk in Parshas Bechukosai that frightens me very much. Now this week, Cedric contains a boatload of warnings and threats. Very many different sorrows. Terrible punishments are promised to come on our people if we sin. And yet Rav didn't make a general statement that he's afraid of what's written in the Toichicha. He was afraid that surely every Jew who has Yiras Hashem believes in all the statements of the Torah. But still, it is one of the briefest of statements. Just two words. The Rav chose to say that he fears. Vavadetim habagoyim. And you will go lost among the nations. Of all the curses and punishments in the Torah, this is one that I'm afraid of. This threat that the Am Yisrael might go lost among the nations. Rav shuddered when he read that Pasuk. Now the truth is that a few generations after Rav lived, there were those who tried to alleviate the severity of the Torah's threat. Amar Rav Papa, Rav Papa said, Dilma ka'aveda hamid bakeshet, maybe lost, means like a lost article that is sought out by its owner. That was Rav Papa's consolation. Ka'aveda ha'misbakeshes. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will gather in all those who went lost among the nations, and he will restore them as of the days of old. They belong to him after all. That's how Rav Papa wanted to blunt the blow of this Pasuk. Along comes the Gemara and it says, It's true. It's true that it was only those words, Vavadetim bagoyim. So maybe Rav Papa's consolation would be acceptable. It's an Aveda, a lost article, Hamis Bakeshes, that will be sought out and returned. Alamehaikra. But actually, it was the end of that Pasuk that Rav was afraid of. The last words, you'll go lost among the nations. Ba'achla eschem eretz oivechem. And the land of your enemies will consume you, will eat you up. That's what Rav feared. If somebody lost an apple and it was found by a stranger and eaten up, there's no hope of restoring it. And that's what our Pasuk says. Ve'achla eschem, the land of your enemies will devour you. Oh, to be eaten up. That's already a different story. There's no hope anymore. So along came Marzutra. He lived one generation later and he sought a consolation even on those words. Amar Rav Zutra. Marzutra said that even those words can be made more mild. They can be understood less severely. Dilma kachilat kishuin viduluin. Maybe it's like eating melons. It's true that once a watermelon is consumed, it's lost. But the seeds remain. And from the seeds, new generations of watermelons grow. You know, in case you're interested in chewing watermelon seeds, you'll find that it's not so simple. You try to chew them, but the pressure of your tongue, your cheeks, and your teeth cause them to fly out in all directions. It's not an accident, by the way. Hashem made it that way so that the seeds should escape and new watermelons should grow. The watermelon seeds are covered with a slippery mucus. It's not the moistness of the watermelon that is causing the seed to be slippery. There's a slippery mucus on the watermelon seed for the purpose of helping the seed evade you. If you were out in the country, the seeds would shoot out and land on the soft ground, and they would begin to grow again. That's why, when I once went to visit a place, an old farm with Negro cottages, so I saw watermelon vines growing all around the steps of the cottages. What's this? I asked the farmer. Is that a convenient place to plant watermelons right near the steps? He said, 
I didn't plant it. The slaves were sitting here on the steps at night, playing on their banjos, eating watermelon, and spitting out the seeds. And these watermelon plants are from those seeds. And so, Marzutra said, There is hope yet. Maybe we'll be devoured like a melon. And yet, whatever is eaten up will grow back again. And so, like Rav Papa, Marzutra had a way of being poiser the Nevua in a better light. Lost doesn't mean lost forever. And devoured doesn't mean forever. One day, everyone will be found and restored again. Now, we are willing to accept both Rav Papa's and Marzutra's explanation. Why not? They have a right to differ with Rav after all. It's a Pasuk, and we can understand the Pasuk in other ways. The truth is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu prefers that we give kindly interpretations to his words. It's a principle that whenever Chachmei Yisrael, sages, come along and make statements that are kindly and beneficial to the Am Yisrael, HaKadosh Baruch Hu likes those statements, and to a certain degree, to an extent, he follows them. He agrees. Yes, that's the Peshat. And so if Rav Papa, who certainly had a lot of influence with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and Marzutra too, if these two great men interpreted these Pesukim, there's no question that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to honor their opinion, and it's going to help. But we have to know that there is no guarantee. It's true. It's a consideration. If the right man gives a favorable interpretation, because of his zechus, it might turn out that way. And therefore, we are grateful to Rav Papa and Marzutra. Their words are in the Gemara, and we hope that their words will bear a great deal of weight. And yet, as much as we hope, we have to shudder along with Rav. After all, he said, Miss Tapina, I'm afraid of this Pasuk. And Rav was wise enough to learn Peshat like Rav Papa and Marzutra. Rav had a very good head after all. And he said he's afraid anyhow, which means that he did not accept those explanations as the final word. And so we see that despite all the consolations of these two great men, there remains a place for fear of getting lost among the nations and being consumed by them. Now before we go on, we should first understand what it means that the land of your enemies will consume you. Because there's something I have to say that might surprise you. The Christians in the Middle Ages were not really our enemies. When a Jew lived in Christian Europe, he was among friends. You know why I say that? Because in Christian Europe, it was the fashion to believe in the Bible. In the Middle Ages, if a Jew was accused to the local Gentile magistrate that he was disloyal to the Jewish laws, so the magistrate used to punish the Jew. Jews had to obey their rabbis. The Christians demanded it. That's how it was. Unless you were willing to come over and join them, then they gladly welcomed you. But as long as you were a Jew, you were forced to be a Jew. And if a Jew was not religious, he was a vagabond. He could be chastised severely by the Gentiles. There was no such thing in Christian Europe of disbelief in the Bible. Of course, they added on their nonsensical commentaries and foolish explanations. But the fact is that if anyone would speak up and say he does not believe in the Bible, he would end up being treated to an auto da fe. He would be burned at the stake. In Christian Europe, you had to believe that the world was created in six days. You couldn't be a modern Orthodox rabbi who says it means six eras, six geological ages. Oh, no. You couldn't have such a thing like was written up in the Jewish action last year. That the Torah can believe that Adam and apes come from the same source. An ancient algae, a prebiotic soup. You didn't have to be busy combating evolution in Christian Europe. They wouldn't accept such nonsense in those days. 
What about moral perversion? Nothing doing. What did they do with an adulteress? She was put to death. In the good old days, not only in the Middle Ages. In America, the pilgrims used to take an adulteress and put her to death. The Bible was upheld. And therefore, it was easy for a Jew to avoid very many wicked forms of sin. Not like today. Today, the New York Times advertises a book advocating all sorts of immorality. You know the New York Times has a special office for accepting advertisements. They won't just take any advertising. There's a special office where any questionable advertising is examined to determine if it could be admitted to the august columns of the New York Times. But this they put in, an ad for such a book. Now such things, that's what it means to live among enemies. Today an Orthodox Jew has to worry about combating various forms of immorality. Immorality in dress, in coeducation, in advertising, on the street, even in government propaganda. There are thousands of things you have to fight for today to be an Orthodox Jew. There was no evolution education in the Middle Ages. There was no fornication education like they have in schools today. And so, in medieval Europe, many of today's problems were solved. And therefore, there was a statement that Jews used to say, Avi es Kristalzach. It means, as Christians go, so the Jews go. So since the Christians were religious, the Jews were religious too. They weren't our enemies. It was a fertile soil for Judaism to flourish. And therefore, this wasn't the land of our enemies. It was the land of our good friends. Only that they were the type of friends who, if they had a chance, they might kill you. Many Jews were killed by Christians on the road. If you look in the Shilas Uchuvus in the Middle Ages, even late Middle Ages, recent times, you'll see many questions of women whose husbands disappeared and they wanted to get remarried. They're Agunus. Then it was discovered a Goy who came and he said, I heard that your husband was killed by this and this Gentile on the road. Again and again, the Jewish Sepharim are full of stories how our friends killed us. It's true that they persecuted us. Oh, did they persecute us. All down to modern times. I recommend people read the book called The Foot of Pride by Malcolm Hay, and it will give you a list of stories of the kind-hearted church. They were very difficult friends to have. So you'll say, that's what Rav was afraid of, blood libels and pogroms. No, that's not what Rav was afraid of, because even in the Holocaust, when they were burnt up, the good ones were not eaten up. They were not devoured by enemies. Yes, they were divested of their bodies, but they went to a better place. They're still alive in Oilam Haba right now. Rav's fear was much greater than that. Just to lose your flesh and blood covering, to be devoured in this little world, that's not being devoured in the land of your enemies. Because Ve'achla Eschem Eretz Oivechem means to go lost forever. And that is what Rav feared. So what was Rav afraid of? I wanted to get right to the point and tell you that he was afraid of today's America, that he was afraid of today's London and Tel Aviv and Australia. But in order that you should expect it, we'll speak about other examples first, examples that won't hurt your feelings. Rav was afraid of what happened in China. Now in China, there was no anti-Semitism. The Chinese didn't have any old false grudge against the Jewish people. The Jews didn't crucify Confucius, so what was there to hate? Of course, we didn't crucify that other one either. Crucifixion was not a Jewish system. It was the way of the Romans, but at least in the imagination of the Christians, they were able to pin it on the Jews. 
But the Chinese had no grudge against us. They didn't make pogroms or crusades, and no holocausts either. And yet, the Jewish people were devoured by the Chinese. Not that they were cannibals. The Chinese used to eat rats and other things, snakes and bats. But they didn't eat people. They were a very civilized nation. The Chinese didn't devour anybody. And still, the Jewish people were devoured in the worst fashion in China. What happened? They lived there so peacefully that they were lost forever. At first, the Chinese Jews kept everything. You know the old Chinese Jews? The Jews in Kaifeng were called with a special name, Tiao Jinjiao. Now, I can't speak Chinese fluently, so I'm not pronouncing it correctly. But the name meant this. It meant those who pull out the sinews from the thigh. It means that they kept the dinim of Gidhanashe, a remarkable thing. The old Jews in China were called the people who pulled the sinews from the thigh. If you look in old encyclopedias, you can still see pictures of old Chinese Jews. They all wore pigtails like the Chinese used to wear. In the encyclopedias, you can still find a drawing of the Jewish synagogue in China, and it shows two gabayim standing on the bima with a Sefer Torah, and they're dressed exactly like Chinese mandarins. And wonder of wonders, I saw photographs of families of Chinese Jews of generations ago, and their eyes were slanted. It means that many Mongolians converted. They joined our nation. There was a constant infiltration of Chinese blood among us. And that's why Jews in China, after a while, began to resemble the Chinese. But they kept everything. They had Shabbos and Shuls and Yomim Toivim. They were from Jews. Only what happened? Because things were so peaceful, so comfortable. So sooner or later, the mixing went the other way. Besides for slanted eyes, nothing wrong with that. But now you had Jews with slanted ideas, twisted attitudes. And after a while, they all got lost. They were eaten up by the Chinese, and today there is nobody left. And that's what it means. That's what Rav was worried about when he read the words in our Sedra. Because those who go lost among the Gentiles, like the Jews who were swallowed up in China, are lost forever. Forever! In the next world, we must weep without end for the churban of the Jewish people in China. All went lost. Nothing remains. For that great kehila, we have to weep. We must mourn. Now, like I said earlier, China is only one example of many. Once upon a time, Jews lived in India. There were Jewish communities in India, and they considered the Indians as friends. It's true they wouldn't touch Jews, but that wasn't hatred. They wouldn't touch low-caste Indians either. An aristocratic Brahmin, a high-class Indian, didn't want to be contaminated even by other Indians. But they didn't have any special grudge against Jews, and yet they were the deadliest of enemies. Just because of that friendliness, by and large, they went lost forever. Now, of course, some Jews survived. Some Jews came more recently by way of Persia into India, and they survived to some extent. But there were older settlements who came before them, way before them, you remember in the Megillus Esther it says, Mehodu ve'ad kush. There were Jews in Hodu. But what happened to them? Not only the ancient kingdom of Persia. Do you know how many Jews went lost in today's Persia? In the Shah's Iran. Under the Shah, under the friendly regime of the Shah, many Iranian Jews were going lost. Only when Khomeini came to power, he put a stop to it. They tell me that Khomeini now finds Jews who profane Shabbos. I was told that this week. 
Khomeini demands that Jews must go to the synagogue in Iran on Shabbos. And now we come to the subject of tonight's lecture. We come now to America. I say America, but it means the entire Western world. All of the cultures of societies that are under the influence of liberalism, of freedom, of enlightenment. America means London and Australia. It means Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim too. So you'll say, America? America isn't the land of our enemies. America is the place where we have the greatest opportunity to succeed. Since we were sent out to Gullahs, there hasn't been a better place. The answer is, you're right. And the truth is that those Jews who understand what the function of life is, they can utilize freedom and liberty and equality. Yes, on the contrary, why shouldn't we utilize this opportunity that America gives us? Many Orthodox Jews today are succeeding in America in raising big families, making parnasa. Some have prestigious occupations. Yes, even in City Hall, a lot of them. A black man once said that. Too many yarmulkes in City Hall. Recently, I had to go to court. I was sitting in court for about three hours. I was amazed by what I saw there. There was a man sitting up front near the judge, an important official there, with a big beard and a yarmulke. He was at home. He was an authority there. He announced, a big macher. Near me sat another man with a big beard. I thought he's just an immigrant, maybe. I started talking to him. He's an ex-judge. He was a judge. He had a big beard as a judge. Now he does something else. He had a black hat and a big beard. It looked like a base medrash there. Today, there are from Jews in the highest positions. Why shouldn't there be? Aren't the Jews the most capable? Wasn't the Rambam the chief position of the Sultan? The Rambam didn't shave off his beard. He dressed like a Jew. He didn't take any other kind of begadim. He walked in every day in the Sultan's palace, and he was respected. He was an authority, famous as a physician. And the Rambam was carrying high the banner of the Torah wherever he went. And therefore, when a Frum Jew is capable of being stubbornly loyal to the Torah, even to its minutiae, we're very proud of that, and we want to have more and more of them. But unfortunately, very many people are unable to succeed in a good climate of tolerance. Very many Jews are going lost, to one degree or another. And so when it comes to the most important of all successes, remaining attached to the Am Yisrael forever, America is not only the land of opportunity, but it's also Eretz Oivechem, the land of our enemies. Of course, we are grateful to America. America is wonderful. But because we misuse it, it becomes the biggest crematorium, the most potent killer of Jews. In Europe, they cremated Jewish bodies. But on this side, the Goyim were cremating Jews spiritually. It's a thousand times worse. If a Jew becomes disloyal, if he doesn't know anything about the Torah, and he walks in the ways of the Gentiles, he might even intermarry. He is lost among the Goyim, and it is better to die a thousand times than to go lost. So when the German Jews came here in the 1870s and so on, they started battling for the right to enter Gentile clubs. They thought that was the happiness, to sit with Gentiles and to live in Gentile neighborhoods. They didn't realize they were battling for their own destruction. Hundreds of thousands, millions of Jews went lost in America. If you get an old telephone book of 40 years ago, you see the many names that no longer exist. Entire families went lost. Lost entirely. I remember families and families. None of them are surviving anymore. Their children got lost among our enemies. 
if it's an alien culture, even though they do not persecute you, they're called your enemy. If a Jewish child goes to a public school and there is a nice, friendly teacher there and there are friendly children, schoolmates, that Jewish child is among the very worst enemies. And even if it's a Jewish school and he's among children who are all born Jews, but if the teacher is only a nominal Jew and the lessons being learned in that school are empty of authentic Torah ideals, so that Jewish child is being devoured by his enemies even worse than if he had fallen among a pack of wolves. Not only the schools, the atmosphere on the street, the environment, everything is filled with apikorsis and materialism. Even among the fruma, so many nebuch are Gentiles covered with a thin layer of frumkite. If you just scratch the surface, if you peel off the paint on the surface, underneath is America. Underneath are Gentile attitudes. And so as safe as we might be, as safe as our bodies might be in America, our neshamas are going lost. And let's not make any mistake. We're not in this world to protect our skin. We're not in this world to remain safe and sound. We're here for the purpose of protecting our eternity. And the only way to do that is to remain attached in the greatest degree possible to the Am Yisroel. To cling with all of our might and main to the authentic Am Yisroel. And therefore, even though we here today represent the successful ones, the Jews who understand how to use tolerance properly, Nevertheless, we have to watch out too. We and our children have to be on guard all the time because we are in the land of our worst enemies. It's the place of our worst enemies because the environment is against us in every detail. And so many, so many Rahman al-Islan are being devoured and lost forever. So many are losing their attachment to the Am Yisrael. And that means that so many are loosening their attachment to eternity. And that brings us now to one of the most important attitudes that a Torah Jew must always have in mind. You know which attitude that is. It's to feel attached to the Am Yisroel, to always be thinking thoughts of identifying with your people. That's one of the most fundamental ways of remaining attached forever to the Am Yisroel. And you have to know that anything else means that you're treading on thin ice of vavadetem bagoyim, of going lost forever. HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't owe anybody anything. It could be you were paid back in this world already for your good deeds. So many good breakfasts you ate in your life. So many suppers. Mountains of food you've eaten in this world. So many breaths of fresh air. So many good times. A person has to worry about that. Maybe he was paid off already. Nobody is guaranteed all the brachas promised to our people. The promises of this world and of Olam Haba and Yemos HaMashiach merely because of his merits. You know how you are guaranteed to be forever with the Am Yisroel by means of identifying with the Am Yisroel. That's what it says. Kol Yisrael yesh lahem chelek habo. All of Yisrael has a portion in the next world. It doesn't mean that you are worthy of Oilam Haba. No, you wouldn't get Oilam Haba on your own merits. It's only because you're a chelek of Kol Yisrael. It's because you are part of Am Yisroel. HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised it wholesale to the Klal Yisroel, and only as much as we feel united with them, in that measure, will we be Zoycheh to what their Zoycheh. We have to work on that. Whether Kol Yisroel are from Temanim, or from Syrians, or from Lakewooders, or from Babavers, whatever it is, if it's an Ada of from Jews, we identify with them. 
It doesn't mean you have to become like them. You have a right not to be a Temani. You have the right to remain a Babavar. But you have to identify with all of your people and to be loyal to all of them. What does that mean? Well, the bare bones requirement is that you don't look down at other groups of from Jews. Here's a woman from Virginia. She was once visiting here in Brooklyn and she called me up. Someone gave her my phone number. She was an Orthodox woman and she was talking to me against the Jews of Borough Park. That the Jews of Borough Park have programs, illegal things. I said, what are you talking about? Jews of Borough Park, when I walk in Borough Park, I'm rarely there. But when I walk there, I'm thinking that I'm walking mamish on Admas Kodesh. Blocks and blocks, all shoimnei mitzvahs, every single one of them. HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves them. From Jews who in every detail of their lives, they're mekayim everything. How could you say such a thing about Borough Park Jews? Besides, there are ge'oinim and sadikim also in Borough Park. Chasidim, ge'oinim, holy people in Borough Park. But even the hamon of from people, how could you say that? There's a man who used to come here every Thursday night. He heard me say this. He stopped coming. He liked to talk against Hasidim. And I told him to his face, you can't talk against from Jews. If you talk against Borough Park, you're an apikoides. He was angry at me. Too bad on him. I was trying to help him. Because many Jews go lost because of that. Because they don't feel connected to the Am Yisrael. Am Yisrael doesn't mean the ones who daven in your shtibel or the ones who wear your type of yarmulke. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you have to be loyal to all of his people. All of the Shoimri Torah Umitzvahs. Now, I say Borough Park because they are especially good. But I'm talking about all of the communities of from Jews. A person must spend time thinking about the greatness of his people. He must spend time appreciating them. Nobody in this world ever was as good as from Jews. Even today's from Jews. We cannot end singing the praises of the from Jewish community. Men and women and their children are striving to fulfill the Torah and they're living lives that are saturated with Avoidus Hashem. They want to know what Hashem wants. And all the time they come to ask questions about Kashrus and Hilchus Shabbos, other things too, the most personal things. The Jewish nation is soaked through and through with Kedusha. They are devoted to the cause of bringing up Jewish children in the way of the Torah. So many people are sacrificing so much money to educate their children in Toyota institutions when they could get away with paying nothing in the public schools. The truth is, they would get nothing too. They'd get worse than nothing. Of course, in the generations past, they were even greater. To be part of the Am Yisrael means you identify with them too. You have to be loyal to our firm ancestors. Are you connected with all the Oiv de Hashem in the previous generations? Do you feel loyalty and affection to our Ovas and to all of the great men of the past? All of them. Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and all the Tzadik Hadoros, the Nevi'im, and the Tanaim. We have to love them. All the Gedoyle Yisrael. We have to love them. We have to be loyal to them and think about them and love them. It cannot be empty ideals, however. You have to back up that ideal with action. Do you name your children after them? Do you give them names after our Ovas, after the Kedoshim of our nation, the Tzadikim? Do you try to imitate the ways of behavior of the Frum Jews? Or do you attempt to imitate the amusements and entertainments of the nations of the world? While at the same time you think, by doing some ceremonies and mitzvahs, you still maintain your connection with the Klal Yisroel. Oh no! 
It's the mode of life of a Jew that identifies with whom he's really interested. Of course, there are many things to imitate. Are you practicing hospitality, Yimilut chasadim, like Avram Avinu, and Sadaka? Do you practice hachnasas orchim like our ancestors always did? When a Meshulach comes along from Eretz Yisrael, do you offer him hospitality? He may not eat your meat. He may not drink your milk. But if you give him an apple, a glatt kosher apple, he will enjoy it. All of these ways of behaving are important parts of identifying with the Am Yisrael. Tzniyas too. Are your daughters trained in Tzniyas? Do they wear dresses that cover them up as much as possible? That's the way of the Jewish nation. A woman who wears pants does not belong to the Klad Yisrael. And she may be the most from woman, but she is not identified with us. The Jewish nation doesn't do such things. The Jews dress like Jews. They're proud to give names that identify with our people. They're proud to display the signs of Judaism on them. Jews wear tzitzis. Jews wear tefillin. Jews wear beards. A Jew wears a hat or a yarmulke or a kippah at all times. Jewish women are dressed decently. They wear tzniyazdika skirts and shaitalech, snoods. All these are signs of demonstrating your allegiance to the eternal nation. Even our amusements identify who we are. We have to identify with our great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers. And once we do that, a great deal of simplicity will result. A great deal of frivolity will be cut out. And a lot of money-wasting will be cut out. Bowling, for instance. Now, there's nothing wrong with going bowling. Bowling is exercise. Fine. But to go bowling among Gentiles, what kind of business is that for Jews? Jews live their lives among Jews and only among from Jews. Even in the Gashmias of our lives, we have to emulate and identify to live together with the Fruma, to be together with them physically. Now, I don't want to start enumerating more things because you'll say I'm a killjoy. You'll say Rabbi Miller is taking away a lot of things from us, a lot of enjoyment. But I'll say that in general, our mode of life has to emulate our forefathers. There are many, many things. You'll have to supply the details yourself. But the principle is to live in a way that the Am Yisrael has always lived. I'll tell you something. Don't be astonished. Please don't be heard if it applies to you. Our forefathers didn't teach their daughters to play music. They didn't have pianos in their homes. Is it necessary to have a piano in a Jewish home? Now... There's no sin if you have a piano. But is it so important for a Jewish girl to have a piano? Aren't there more important things for her to learn? I'm not saying it's a sin, but the idea is imitation of umas ha'olam. Usually a piano in the house is nothing but a demonstration that you're wandering after the ways of the umas ha'olam. And that's what Rav shuddered from. That's what he thought about when he read the Pasuk in our Sedra. Now, if you walk into a house and see a piano, don't quote me. I have enough enemies already. Don't say anything. If your wife has a piano and she insists on it, keep quiet. Don't make a scene from it. But the piano is only an example. It's the attitude, the ideal of identifying with what the Am Yisrael identifies with, of identifying with what our ancestors, the Torah nation, always identified with. Shabbos was their amusement. Purim was a day of amusement. Even Hanukkah had a certain amount of joy. Although Hanukkah is only for Hallel, Lehoidus, or Lehallel, not for Suudas. But still, they enjoyed even Hanukkah. Chamisha Asar B'Shvat, they enjoyed. They took Pedus together and they made brachas on the Pedus. And they thanked Hashem for the Pedus. 
the Jewish nation lived happy occasions all the time. Simchas Torah was a great day, and Shavuos was even greater. By the way, Shavuos was even bigger than Simchas Torah in the olden days. The whole Jewish calendar was studded with joyous occasions, and therefore nobody ever thought of Thanksgiving. It didn't even enter their minds. Nothing of the Gentile world penetrated into the Jewish heart because the Jew identified with his people. He knew that the Shekhinah rested on the Klal Yisrael, and in order to be part of the Shekhinah, he wanted to be bound up only with the Am Yisrael. You have to work on it. And I must tell you, it's of the utmost importance. It's a condition. In order to be part of the Am Yisrael, you have to want to be part of Kol Yisrael Bechol Leiv V'Nefesh. You should practice that. When you walk down the street and you see a Frum house, a big mezuzah, a Frum house, Practice saying brachas on them. Say brachas on them. They don't have to listen. Say it anyhow. Practice all the time, because everything depends on that. Everything depends on your connection to the Amashem. And therefore, when a Jew starts Shemona Esrei, and he says, Baruch Atah Hashem, what does he do the first thing? He identifies who he is. Elokeinu velokei avoteinu. Elokei Abraham. Elokei Yitzchak. Velokei Yaakov. We identify immediately with who we are. You know how important those words are. It means that you're taking hold of a rope. A rope that on one end is tied to our three of us. And holding on to that rope are also all the tzaddikim, all the from Jews in our history. Millions of from Jews holding on to the rope. And all the from Jews of today are also hanging on. The Jews in Passaic and in Los Angeles and Sydney and London and Lakewood and Williamsburg and Baltimore, everywhere where there are from Jews, they're holding on to that rope that our of us are holding on to on one end. And the other end goes all the way to Tchiyas Mesim, all the way to Oilam Haba, all the way to all the brachas that the Torah promises to our people. Ufaniti Alechem, Vifreiti Eschem, Vihirbeiti Eschem. All of the promises will be fulfilled in us. And that's why we're hanging on for dear life. Because the other option is, And that's what it says, Those who are far from you, Hashem, are going to go lost. There is nothing worse than going lost. But you who cling to Hashem, your God, you all live today. Live means you will live forever and ever. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Let's get practical. Connected with the eternal people. The great sage Rav was very afraid of the verse in our Parsha, which describes how some of our people will go lost among our enemies, how they will be devoured. Our greatest enemies are those who show a friendly face while causing us to forego eternity. The only way we can fight back against assimilation is by clinging fiercely to the holy nation which is forever. The bracha of Avos connects us to our great forefathers who originated the holy nation. This week, I will be neder. Think about this every day during davening. As I begin the Shemona Esrei, I will think about our great forefathers and my connection with all of their descendants who follow in their footsteps.